0: Hi, this is Kimberly Cook. The podcast you're about to hear delves into the current social unrest due to the race issues in our country. It examines racism, injustice, the Black Lives Matter movement, and the Christian response to injustice. My interview guest, Justin McLean, a black Catholic author, will be hosting a book reading and discussion group on my Facebook page, The Dignity of Women. All interested are encouraged to join us as we read and discuss Forgiveness Makes You Free by Father Ubald ruggier Follow the link and directions on this post or go to AveMariaPress.com and use the code DIGNITY, that's D-I-G-N-I-T, at checkout to get 20% off and free shipping of Forgiveness Makes You Free. Then join us on the Dignity of Women Facebook page for a discussion each Monday on a chapter of the book. Let's look together at reconciliation as opposed to perpetuating an eye-for-an-eye eye mentality. No power in heaven. Or earth can separate. Welcome to the Dignity of Women, where we dig deep into the vocation and dignity of women in the church, in modern times, and as an answer to the call for a new evangelization. I'm your host, Kimberly Cook. Joining me today is Justin McLean. Justin McLean has taught theology and Spanish at Bishop McNamara High School in Forestville, Maryland, since 2006. He has also served as an adjunct lecturer in Spanish for the pre-college programs at the University of Maryland College Park and taught English as a second language at Prince George's Community College. He received a Golden Apple Award for Excellence in Teaching and Commitment to Catholic Education from the Archdiocese of Washington in 2017. Justin is the author of several books, including Called to Teach and the award-winning Called to Pray. He is a regular contributor to the National Catholic Register, Catholic Exchange, and the National Catholic Educational Association. He was a consultant to the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops Secretariat of Cultural Diversity in the Church's Subcommittee on African American Affairs in 2015, as well as to the USCCB's Department of Justice, Peace, and Human Development and the Secretariat of Catholic Education in 2018. Justin McLean is also a lay Dominican. He lives with his wife, Bernadette, and their children in Bowie, Maryland. Thank you so much for joining us today, Justin.
1: Thank you, Kim. It's great to be here.
0: So we're obviously in a time of great political unrest and social unrest with a lot of rioting going on in response to a recent incident which happened with George Floyd being killed at the hands of police officers. And so that has kind of sparked this conversation. Obviously, I have wanted to talk to you for quite a while on the podcast, but this is a very good time because you grew up as a black Catholic. And I wanna know, first of all, what was your childhood experience like as you came to understand your race and your faith in American society?
1: So I'm a cradle Catholic, uh, born and raised here in Prince George's County which is one of the nation's most ethnically diverse regions right outside of Washington, D.C. And I was raised Catholic, as I mentioned, and my father, Charles McLean, was born in 1936 in North Carolina under segregation. So he lived under the Jim Crow laws in the Jim Crow era, and he actually graduated high school the year that Brown v. Board of Education was decided. So he never actually got to see the desegregation of schools himself, but he lived under segregation in so many different areas in society, really in every area in society. So that was the setting within which he was raised. My mother, my late mother, who passed away 20 years ago, as of this August 14th, she was from Coatesville, Pennsylvania, outside of Philadelphia. So she had a different upbringing, if you will, in that there wasn't necessarily that formal divide in society between people of different ethnic backgrounds. But at the same time, there were still racial tensions that she experienced growing up. So growing up, I don't ever really remember a time in which we didn't know that there have been plenty of eras of racial tension in the United States.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It was one of those situations that you absorb, if you will, in terms of sensing, perceiving, knowing that there's something discordant here in terms of this issue of racism. Mm. Uh, When I was young, I believe I was about seven, and we were traveling up to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. We were on a family trip, and we went to Gettysburg, and we were there on the battlefield, and It's still so uncanny, although this was 30 years ago, it's still so uncanny when I think about what happened. I walked away and looked at some of the different areas there on the field, the different uh, displays and so forth. And I wasn't very far away, maybe 50 or 100 feet from my parents. And there were two younger white men there. And I was sort of startled. And one of them looked at me and said, are you an N-word? Oh, wow. and, and I refused to say that word for various reasons that I could go into. So I don't repeat that word, but he said, are you a N-word? He said that. Mm. And I remember the terror that I felt at that. That was probably the most memorable situation of overt racism that I've experienced. And although that was 30 years ago, I still cringe when I think about that. I don't know what his intent was. Just as soon as he said that, they both turned and walked away and I was just frozen there grateful. And, uh, it was about a few minutes later that once I reunited with my parents that I tried to convey to them, uh, what happened. So
0: had you ever heard that word before? Were you familiar with it? Or was it something that you were asking your parents? What is this? I
1: had heard it before. I don't remember how I learned it. Uh, it wasn't in necessarily an instructive way, but I definitely knew that that word was a derogatory term for black people. Okay. So uh, experiencing that really horrified me and has always stuck with me. So I've always known, although that was 30 years ago, I've always known that racism does exist. Uh, It's one of the many ills of the human heart. I think that humanity tends to almost outdo itself in terms of its ability and inclination to divide people in in an unjustifiable way, in an outright hateful way, each generation in historical terms tends to find a way to to outdo the previous generation in that so i offer that as an anecdote and an example really that the situation does exist and there is a need for racial healing for various reasons
2: mm-hmm
0: you mentioned that you were raised as a cradle Catholic. Was there anything as far as being Catholic or as far as your faith that seemed to go one way or the other with race in any way?
1: So my father was actually raised Baptist and he converted to Catholicism in the 60s because he was so impressed with President John F. Kennedy, who was Catholic, our only Catholic president. Wow. He had seen what Kennedy and right after Kennedy Johnson had done for restoring civil rights for blacks in the United States. And not really restoring civil rights, essentially establishing civil rights or proclaiming civil rights for people of minority ethnic backgrounds in the United States. And he was so inspired by JFK's example that he pretty much converted to Catholicism because JFK was Catholic.
0: That's incredible.
1: So I really encourage Catholics to take your faith seriously because you never know who's watching and if you're living the tenets of your faith well, then that is going to lead people to seek that which is good, holy and true.
0: That's so funny too because nowadays we never think of politicians or presidential candidates or you know people in those positions in our society. We'd never think of them as influencing people's faith.
1: Certainly. And if anything, Often with Catholic politicians, the United States, many of them have actually confused people's faith in terms of the impulse that some of them have to work against the teachings of the church uh, within their very powerful roles. I really value seeing Catholics take their faith seriously, especially those who are considering going into politics.
0: Yes, good advice there. Thank you. The horrors of racism are worldwide and found even among family and community members. I can't help but remember the 1994 Rwandan Holocaust when the country's Hutu population raped and slaughtered 70% of its Tutsi population with machetes and rifles. Holocaust survivor Immaculée Ilibagiza writes in her book, Left to Tell, about the horrific moments of hearing her family members get slaughtered by friends and neighbors. The physical differences between the groups came down to skin shades, narrower noses, and height. How do we make sense of racial holocaust among communities?
1: I'm so very glad you asked that because when we look at racism, it's a social construct. And as with any social construct, it is quite arbitrary, or at least it can be quite arbitrary. You look different from me, you have these different physical features, therefore, if I am in a position of power, I am going to decide that that is going to be the dividing force between us, and therefore, you are, quote-unquote, of less value than I am. If we look at every instance throughout history that has been a wide-scale humanitarian disaster, it essentially boiled down to looking at an entire segment of the population And on rather arbitrary means deciding that they are subhuman. We saw this with slavery in the United States and elsewhere around the world, even in modern times. We have slavery around the world, which I never shy away from reminding people. We have seen this in genocides throughout history. You mentioned the Rwandan genocide, uh, the Armenian genocide. We see this in the modern era with Abortion, where in the United States alone, around 3,000 innocent human beings are slaughtered in the womb, defenselessly, voicelessly, devoid of any recognition of their human right to be alive. So all throughout history, we have seen the denigration of entire group as being, quote unquote, less than, because when we decide that somebody is less than, then they might as well, in our eyes, be livestock or otherwise able to be objectified to have their human rights denied and cast aside. So when we look at the Rwandan genocide there in 1994, which started in April of 94 and lasted for those months, we saw, again, a rather arbitrary division in society, and it was based on hatred. You had the Hutus and the Tutsis, And the two sides had been dealing with great tensions for multiple generations ever since the Belgian colonization of Rwanda in the previous century. And that resentment spilled over. It overflowed. And that's why I always encourage people not to make decisions when they are angry or Mm. upset. Because we often, even more than often, we usually make very poor decisions when we act based on anger. So when those seeds of anger had been manifesting themselves over generations they were wanted, and then they finally spilled over, we had resentment turn into murder. We had that which was simply resentment turn into saying to the other, "The world would be better if you were not here." right when we look at issues that divide the gospel has the answer and this is one point that i'll continue coming back to because no surprise here but when we look at any horrible situation within humanity when we look at any humanitarian crisis jesus said something at some point that gives us a response that gives us the christian response the response of a disciple in order to respond to it. And that often speaks to the world, the increasingly secularized world, mm-hmm. because they mm-hmm. all but cast aside the gospel. So I'll go into that more a little bit later, but in response to your question about the Rwandan genocide, if there hadn't been these sets of arbitrary characteristics that were seen as reasons to divide, I dare say that some might've found other reasons to justify their violence and their killing.
0: Absolutely, excellent answer to that. I recently watched an incredible documentary on Clarence Thomas on PBS that hit me very hard. Thomas grew up dirt poor as a southern black boy without a father figure. He went on to become a Catholic seminarian and then a supporter of the Black Panthers. Finally, becoming a conservative lawyer and despite serving on civil rights and equal employment opportunity commissions, Thomas said he was not the right black man, quote unquote, meaning that regardless of all he had overcome in his life, he didn't fit the racial image that a black man was expected to fit by either whites or or blacks during his confirmation hearings as a supreme court justice thomas said to joe biden and the other white men on the panel from my standpoint as a black american as far as i'm concerned it is a high-tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you kowtow to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the U.S. Senate rather than hung from a tree. As a conservative Black Catholic, have you felt isolated by either the Black community, the conservative community, or the Catholic community for your race and the beliefs you hold?
1: I would say that a term that I prefer to to identify myself is I strive for orthodoxy. And when we strive for orthodoxy as a matter of faith, when we strive to live and proclaim and to celebrate the church's teachings on morality and on the uh, sacramental life really on its doctrinal and dogmatic precepts and we strive to live according to that that's orthodoxy so the right reading of something the orthodoxy of it and one would think that when we attempt to be a peacemaker and a cool head and a bridge builder and try to insert the gospel into the equation one would think that that would be met with appreciation and reason instead i have unfortunately often found the opposite in that i've encountered people who had perhaps a caricature or a stereotype of how a black person should think
2: Mm
1: -hmm. how this person should align politically how this person should declare and proclaim that which is considered central to the experience of people of this ethnic background. Mm -hmm. These stereotypes and caricatures are problematic because they do not allow any nuance. They don't allow any nuance. And I'll tell you a short story, Kim, because uh, this is when I realized just how nuanced we need to be when having discussions and considerations around ethnicity. So I used to teach Spanish at McNamara, and now I teach theology. And Latin America is actually the most ethnically diverse continent. And a lot of people don't realize that. Sometimes people think it's North America or maybe Asia, but it's actually Latin America.
0: I didn't know that.
1: When you look at nations such as Brazil and nations of the Caribbean, you see a very beautiful, rich ethnic tapestry when we look at the ethnic settings of those places. And Bernadette and I often talk about how we are going to talk about matters of ethnicity increasingly as our kids get older. When they're really little, you start by telling them that we're all equal in God's eyes, that God loves diversity in terms of ethnicity and nationality, that these things are things to celebrate looking at the different backgrounds that people have, that these are things to celebrate. But as they get older, then situations such as racism, slavery, and so forth start to enter in sooner than later. And this is the story I want to share with you. And that is that one day I was talking with a friend and it dawned on me that when we talk to the kids about slavery as they get older, that it's actually in my ancestry as their black father, it's actually on my side of the family that there was slaveholding. Oh, wow. So I'm black, Bernadette's white. But back about five generations, one of my ancestors was actually uh, with child from the slave master. Mm. So in my blood is the the ancestry, if you will, of slaveholding and slavery. On Bernadette's side of the family, there's not that. Yet, on her side of the family, some soldiers fought for the Union. So you look at the situation of us as a married couple, and when we talk about this, there's no ability to really get into the the weeds, so to speak, without looking at the incredible quantity of nuance with which we have to look at things. Because it's not going to be that easy, at least not for very long, to simply view things in such a perhaps ethnically binary way. Perhaps at one time within our uh, nation's history, but as each generation continues and transitions into the next generation, we have more and more of this reality that we are an increasingly diverse nation. Talking about just the united states if we look around the world similar situation in light of globalism and moving around the globe and, and immigration and so many other factors so uh when i look at clarence thomas i'm not an expert on clarence thomas but i can certainly relate in some ways to what he means by not necessarily being seen as quote unquote the right guy because when it comes to proclaiming the gospel jesus's message simply cuts through any political pretensions We are called to engage politically, and we are called to legitimately support the government insofar as it provides services to its people. But we are ultimately there in the public square called to bring our values into the public square. Because if we proclaim that which is good, holy, and true, then that's going to benefit society. Broader society may not see it, at least not in the immediacy, but eventually we see the beauty of the gospel lived in society.
0: Justin, I love the fact that you keep on pulling it into the Gospels and to Christ because I think that that's what we as Christians need to be all about, regardless of what the issue at hand is. Like you said, we need to fight for justice, but we need to remember to be the peacemakers and to remember where that's coming from. It's coming from Christ. Our power is in Christ, our power to heal. Thank you so much for sharing that story of your family because that is an incredible past to reconcile, you know, and obviously it's a lot of people's stories from their past generations where someone in their family who may have been in slavery had gotten impregnated by the slave owner. We know that that was something that happened So in that case, those people who do know that history, where that history has passed down, it's a whole nother dimension of racism, of slavery, of injustice and dehumanization and all of those issues that, like you said, go against the gospel, go against the message of Christ. And it's hard to unpack even as an adult, much less to try to explain that to children. So I really appreciate you sharing that insight
1: certainly
0: the most recent racial incident in america of a black man killed by a police officer is the case of george floyd which has ignited a literal firestorm across the country Protests have given way to many riots and incidents of arson, which have left at least 20 people dead, mostly African Americans. In Chicago alone, police superintendent David Brown reported that 699 arrests of primarily looters were made, 48 shootings, 17 homicides, and 132 officers were injured during the riots. One of the most heartbreaking deaths for me personally was that of a 77-year-old retired St. Louis police captain, David Dorn, who was shot and killed by looters at his friend's pawn shop. There is an image circulating from his memorial of a black woman wiping away tears in front of a handmade sign that reads, y'all killed a black man because they killed a black man. Question mark, question mark, question mark. What do you think of the response of the Black community who are rioting and looting in response to the unjust killing of George Floyd? Do you think this is the only way they see possible to bring about change to the corruption of power?
1: I am so very glad you asked that because I will not mince words. There's no place for rioting, looting, burning, destroying, assaulting. There's no place for this as a response to someone who was unjustly killed there's no place for this especially considering and this is something that i perhaps would like to emphasize more especially considering when you've actually had leaders across the political spectrum call for an end to the destructive behavior
2: Mm -hmm.
1: few things unite across the the spectrum Pope francis himself has talked about this President Obama, President Trump, uh, so many different leaders have called to an end to the violence that we've seen in the streets. Now, that's the the violence and the rioting and the looting in the streets. I'm all for peaceful protest. I attend a very peaceful protest every year with a March for Life. I've attended it so many years. I have yet to see any act of violence or vandalism. Mm-hmm. I've seen people walk up and down the streets of D.C. during the March for Life with signs that identify their stance of supporting abortion rights and them engaging in civil conversations, and I never felt that that person's life or physical safety was in jeopardy. So there's something in which we need to be able to express ourselves peacefully. We see this all throughout history. I have loved seeing police officers marching alongside people peacefully. That, for me, as somebody who tries to be diplomatic in such situations, that, for me, gives me hope. Especially since I know so many police officers myself. I studied criminology undergrad at the University of Maryland, so I know at least 100 police officers. And you'll never find any segment of the population who knows police work so well that they weren't absolutely horrified to learn about what happened to George Floyd Mm -hmm. they were irate on social media and in person on otherwise and just sharing with me how needless his death was Mm -hmm. his death was an absolute tragedy so when you have one tragedy as the the woman at his memorial service mentioned when you have one tragic situation don't compound that I don't know when it became acceptable again to have an eye for an eye mentality or to have a vengeful mentality. Mm. Of course, within our gut, we are absolutely horrified and disgusted and entirely opposed at so many different levels at what happened. But how does the Christian respond? Not with vengeance, but with reconciliation, with a call to repentance. You mentioned earlier the Rwandan genocide, uh, what happened there. And in the 26 years since that happened, there are so many different stories within Rwanda of reconciliation. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: between those Hutus who were responsible for killing Tutsis, but also those who maybe turned a blind eye. So between them and then the family members and other close friends of the victims. Reconciliation. So when we look at this broader situation in the streets, I would like to see the media highlight to a much greater extent the peaceful protests, the real dialogue that has happened. I run every day, and I'm also a, a people watcher, so I have that combination. In the miles that I've covered over the last two weeks, I have seen so many different people of all different shades under the sun speaking to each other. I think that we as a society really yearn for that connection, Hmm. and we know that there's quote-unquote something wrong. And attending a protest may not be for everyone but simply taking it to the sidewalk if you can't take it to the streets take it to the sidewalk and just look at someone as a fellow human being made in the image and likeness of god and that's what changes society so going back to your original point there's never any time to lash out do we need to look at the reasons that some may feel called to lash out entirely But we cannot excuse violence that has occurred in response to violence, because that's antithetical to peace. That's antithetical to the restoration of the right ordering of society in terms of loving our neighbor. Some have made reference to Jesus overturning the tables. This Mm -hmm. is one of the comparisons I've seen so often. And to that I say, well, he had the prerogative to do that because he was the temple. He was more than the temple. So if the temple is being disregarded, if its sacredness has been stripped aside due to materialism and sheerly human concerns, then he had the prerogative to drive those who were unjustly present from the temple. Area. He didn't set fire to the temple and smash this, that, and the other. So I think that we have to, again, making recourse to that nuance, we have to delineate in our minds the peaceful protesters from the rioters and the looters who have captured the public's attention because there have been many meaningful protests that have been attended by police officers and the public alike, walking arm-in-arm, hand-in-hand, both similarly calling for a need for uh, positive change in society in terms of how interactions happen between the police and minority communities.
0: Thank you for sharing that because... Of course, with anything else in media, the loudest, biggest is going to get hyped up over anything else. And that's what people are going to be gravitating towards. So it's good that you say that. It also really struck me how you said if you can't take to the streets, take to the sidewalks and, you know, do what you can in having those conversations with one another or just simply treating another person as a human being, regardless of anything, their sex, gender, skin color. My mind keeps on going back to Mother Teresa throughout this whole thing and how she was able to do so much for so many people who were suffering, dying, and in need. And she simply just did it with helping one person at a time. And it was a very just silent charity that just did, did, did. And, you know, she would always say to look at the other person with a smile. And if you can't feed, you know, a thousand people, just feed one, just feed the person in front of you. And I think that's what keeps on coming to the forefront of my mind because you do get overwhelmed with what can I possibly do to make any kind of a change. But when you think of just... That simple shift in mind frame to be more aware of others as human beings with infinite eternal dignity. And how am I expressing that through my smile, my eye contact, um, my conversations, just little things. Just those small things sometimes can have gigantic impacts on our society. In 2013, the Black Lives Matter movement was started as a response to the death of Trayvon Martin. The movement's goals are to create a world free of anti-blackness where every black person has the social, economic, and political power to thrive. The movement states, we are guided by the fact that all black lives matter regardless of actual or perceived sexual identity, gender identity, gender expression, economic status, ability, disability, religious beliefs or disbeliefs, immigration status, or location. Their website goes on to state, when we gather, we do so with the intention of free." ourselves from the tight grip of heteronormative thinking. My question is how the Black Lives Matter movement has worked to call attention to the dignity of black lives and if the movement is also inclusive and representative of black conservatives, particularly those who are pro-life opposed to a homosexual marriage and are led by traditional religious convictions. Does the movement transcend these differences in the black community?
1: So this question will probably be the most difficult one to answer because you have two different meanings of black lives matter on the one hand you have the one that i suspect everyone can get behind and that is the need to proclaim the dignity and value of everyone and in this case when you see the injustices that have occurred against black americans throughout the history of the united states in this case we need to remind ourselves that Black Lives Matter. So that's the one But then you have Black Lives Matter copyright, if you will, the official movement. Mm -hmm. That does cause some concern for those who strive to live according to their Christian faith because we who have faith in Christ cannot support, for instance, the transgender movement.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When we look at what has come down from the Vatican over the last few years, really throughout Pope Francis's pontificate, he has consistently reminded us that male and female, he created them, which comes from Jesus. That's from Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is echoing Genesis, Genesis 1, 27, that we're made in God's image and likeness, male and female, he created them so i'm not sure why the official quote-unquote black lives matter movement pulled that in but i know an increasing number of christians who cannot necessarily get behind the official Mm -hmm. political movement because of what it contains which far transcends the proclamation of equality among people of different ethnic backgrounds And we see the same there with the issue with the heteronormative Mm -hmm. thinking the christian must proclaim the dignity and value of the nuclear family as husband and wife as mother and father saint john paul ii talked about this ad infinitum as did benedict and as has pope francis in terms of talking about the significance of the intact family A lot of crime is spurred by poverty. And one of the most significant contributing factors to poverty is the breakdown of the family. Mm -hmm. The stronger the family is, the stronger society is. That may not be a view that's necessarily popular or at least proclaimed, but it is one that we as Christians have to proclaim. So, the family is vital. We can't pretend that we can have a strong society in which everyone is given their due if we don't also celebrate the family. We have to celebrate the strengthening of the family. It's something that, as a Black man, I will say is a significant topic of concern in the Black community, in which there is so much fatherlessness. So, it's something that needs to be talked about more in order to be able to proclaim this in terms of. Black Lives Matter, again, you have those two dichotomies, if you will. You have the principle, which is ideal in principle, but then you have the official movement, which contains many positions that are antithetical to the gospel that Christians can't support, at least not if you're striving to live as a disciple of Jesus Christ.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Certainly, certainly.
0: That really clarifies it for me in so many ways because I do know that there are many Christians who are struggling with that. Of course, as you said, the distinction, they do believe that black lives matter and have an infinite eternal significance, especially in moments of unrest or when that maybe is being threatened by society or coming into question in any way, they would be happy to stand behind that and to proclaim that and peacefully protest for that or a number of other things but then when they get into the details of, like you said, the organization of Black Lives Matter and for myself just starting to comb through the website and finding so many things repeated over and over again that are contrary to my faith beliefs and I'm also not really sure what they have to do with that message because it seems like it's getting into several other things that could be called an agenda where the finances are coming from and where these beliefs are starting to go and you wonder how you can separate the two and saying, yes, I believe and support the fact that Black Lives Matter, but no, I don't want to be affiliated with this organization and I can't be affiliated with this organization. So thank you for clarifying the difference between that. What part does your Catholic faith play in your life and your response to the dignity of all people?
1: I often say that Luke 6.31 covers a multitude of ills when Jesus says, do to others as you would have them do to you. That covers so many different ills in society, from racism to sexism, to the denial of rights, to the unborn, to the disregard of those living in poverty or disregarding immigrants and so forth. When we look at Jesus' teaching of do to others as you would have them do to you, that covers multitude of ills. There's no way that somebody can hold that tenet in his or her heart, yet look at someone of a different color and want to destroy that person, there's no way. If you strive to do to others as you would have them do to you. Yes. I was talking to a Dominican priest friend yesterday and what he said absolutely stunned me because we were talking about this very principle in Luke 6:31. And he said that there is now a hyper-secularizing movement in society to overturn, whatever that looks like, the golden rule. Because it is, and this is just going to make you flip your lid, because the golden rule is not enough. There is the call to replace it with the platinum rule. (laughs) Oh, no. And he said that, according to the platinum rule, (laughs) that we must do to others as they would have us do to them. In other words, what they want goes.
0: That gets a little scary.
1: That right there is the floodgates of fallenness, of decadence in society. I'm sure that the evil one would love to see that proclaimed ad infinitum. Luke 6.31 covers a multitude of ills, and I say that at the risk of oversimplification, I don't want to overly simplify, because we do absolutely need concrete action in society. When we have an injustice, we need concrete action, I don't think that any reasonable person would deny it. Along with prayer reinforcing our action, we do need to act in a Christian manner otherwise we're being hypocritical. But when we simply remind ourselves that we're all made in God's image and likeness, then sources of fallenness such as racism and so forth wouldn't even occur to us. Right. Or if they did, they would be repulsive. How could I look at anyone of any skin color or any other physical characteristic? How could I look at another person and view that person as anything other than deserving of the fullness of dignity, which is God-given? There's a reason why when people of faith look at this broader discord in society, that we have more hope. I'm a historian, and I I look at things by the century. I look at things spanning millennia. I have hope because Christianity grew and spread in an era not unlike modern times. There may not have been racism, per se, at least as we understand it in modern terms, but there were still plenty of sources of division in society. And the first Catholics proclaimed the good news 2,000 years ago, when it was unpopular, rejected, when many preferred to hear perceived solutions born entirely of secularism, mm-hmm. the gospel refreshed I'm going to tell a quick story. So my kids love having fire pits outside in the backyard. We have this fire pit. So we like to sit around and, you know, burn stuff within reason. You know, we have little wood fires and we cook s'mores and everything. And the other day it had rained and a lot of the kindling was rather damp and the fire just wasn't catching. There was this one area of the kindling that was dry, and I said, kids, we're gonna start a good fire here, so watch what I'm gonna do. So we lit that part that was dry, and I continued to add more and more dry sticks and paper there to keep that part intensely burning. The heat from that spread out and dried out the dampness in the rest of the fire pit, and we eventually had a raging fire. That's what it's like in modern times to proclaim the gospel to the world. Numbers are not in our favor right now, but were the numbers in Jesus' favor when he first chose Andrew and Peter? Okay, so he has two. So far, so good. Then it went to 12. And then one unfortunately departed. Okay, 11. <laughs> He's wow. replaced back to 12, and these were just his closest disciples, but he had many following him. So we have to be like that small, intense portion of the fire pit. We have to continue to proclaim the beauty, goodness, and truth of the gospel, and people who have ears to hear and eyes to see, are going to look at that and say, there's something there. There's a flicker of a flame. And that is what can set the world on fire, to use St. Catherine of Siena. Fellow lay Dominican, little shout out to uh, (laughs) Catherine of Siena.
0: We'll allow it.
1: If we just simply keep the heat on society, Mm -hmm. it's not in in an oppressive way. We're not talking about making society look like the handmaid's tale, as I've seen uh, so many different memes and and so forth proclaiming. No, the antithesis of that. I don't think that a theocracy would ever function well because it would crumble. Mm -hmm. Theocracies are always very effective at turning people away from God. I think that we need to bring our faith into society and to offer a voice that is illustrative in that way and showing, you know what, we have the remedy for what is ailing society. And that remedy comes in the form of Jesus Christ and his gospel. When we look at so many different figures throughout the last few hundred years, especially in the United States, slavery, I dare say, could not have been overturned without the gospel. Maybe it eventually would have fallen, but certainly not as quickly because mm-hmm. you have the moral impulse calling for the viewing of the other as your brother as a fellow child of god right when we speak up for the lives of ethnic minorities when we speak up for the lives of ethnic minorities in the womb who are being absolutely obliterated mm-hmm. When we speak up for the lives of every single human being in society, people will see that and say, you know what, there's a consistency there. In a world of such turmoil and tumult and being upside down and not knowing right from wrong and every day there's some episode that occurs that seems to outdo previous injustices, we look at the gospel and say there's something there. There's a consistency there that provides stability in a fallen world.
0: You talked a little bit already about approaching the issue of race with your own children. What is your message to the young black men you teach and mentor and to any young black men that may be listening right now?
1: My message is to allow yourself to receive others' best intentions and to give the benefit of the doubt. Mm -hmm. By that I mean, to be aware of injustices in the world, especially if you've been a victim of those injustices, to be aware of those, but in that situation, to ask yourself, how can I individually make the world a better place? When we look at the world decades from now, who knows what it will look like? Mm -hmm. There will certainly be injustices of some type throughout society, both in the United States and around the world. How can I, every day, work to proclaim the dignity and value of every human being? Especially when it comes to my fellow Black men, how can we better dignify women in society? I mean, this podcast is called The Dignity of Women, and I'm (laughs) so honored as a man to be uh, asked to be on here. How can we dignify women? Because as I tell my male students, every woman is somebody's daughter, perhaps somebody's mother, sister, grandmother, aunt. So how can we better regard women and to give them their worth? We live in a society that has come to objectify many people throughout society but probably women are getting the brunt of that. If you look at pornography and the sex trade and human trafficking, if you look at those realities. So to my fellow black men, I say that the past is there and we have to know it. I'm a historian. I'm all about laying it all for all to see in terms of what the human experience has looked like. I'm all about looking under the rug in terms of what has happened throughout history, in terms of (laughs) exposing injustices. So since these injustices have occurred throughout history, looking ahead to the future, what can we commit to commit to being a man of the family commit to your wife and your children or to your future wife and your children and to protecting and honoring and serving them commit to being godly men, commit to being humble, commit to being devoted to a cause greater than yourself. And we see that in being a disciple of Jesus Christ. Commit to being a light in the darkness. Commit to looking at the injustices of the past and letting your bitterness turn into love and regard for your neighbor. Because bitterness and anger and resentment will only perpetuate, especially if they're in response to other manifestations of bitterness and anger and resentment. Mm-hmm. I'm going to use the title of a book here by Father Eubald Mirangoga, and it's called Forgiveness Makes You Free. It's from Ave Maria Press. And Father Eubald actually was a survivor of the Rwandan genocide. And when he wrote Forgiveness Makes You Free, he talked about that very thing, that forgiveness is what ultimately liberates us. Forgiveness does not mean saying that what happened is okay. That's probably the biggest misconception about forgiveness. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean that what has happened in the past or even in the present in terms of racial injustices, it doesn't mean that what happened is okay. It means whatever that person did, it was due to a sickness in his or her heart. We call that sin. Mm -hmm. It was a defect of some sort. Mm -hmm. What can we do to make things right in the midst of it? What can we do? I think that we need more ministerial outreach in the community, really, in terms of reconciling. This is my perspective as an aside. I think that we need more opportunities to reach out and to reconcile those who have been wronged with those who have wronged. We saw this with John Paul II and his would-be assassin. I think that that would heal a lot of wounds in society if we saw reconciliation more than retribution.
0: Right. I'm so glad you mentioned that book because not only did our pastor mention that in his homily this Sunday, But I've been wanting to read that for a while, and I was incredibly moved by Left to Tell. Like I said earlier, that is probably the single most book that has had the largest impact on my life in terms of a wake-up call of forgiveness, of what really matters, of putting things into perspective, of racism. I mean, that book by Immaculate opened so many doors in my mind and it revealed so much of who God is and how God can work and how in the midst of so much, as you said, sin, in the midst of so much evil, how that one little spark of light, as you said, that one little spark of fire can really ignite this beautiful light in the darkness. So Justin, how do you see the country moving forward when many people are more afraid than ever to have honest discussions about race for fear of being called a racist?
1: So in my response to your last question, I mentioned best intentions and benefit of the doubt. And this will not be one on social media. (laughs) <laughs> you and I are both active on social media, and I imagine you probably attest to this to this will not be quote unquote one on social media. I've had Facebook for 16 years. And I have frankly never seen anything like what I've seen over the last two weeks. There's a certain animosity that has erupted and I've never seen such ferocity. I've had plenty of dialogue with people over the years, but I've never seen something of such a ferocious, nefarious discord between different perceived sides. And I'm going to use one example because I've seen this circulating. For years, I've told people in person and I've used this phrase, I've said that I'm colorblind. By that, I have always meant that I view everyone equally. Mm -hmm. Of course, you might be white, black, mixed, Asian, whatever. Of course, you know, this might be your ethnic background. But when I have said that I'm colorblind, I've simply meant with best intentions and with the benefit of the doubt that I view everyone equally. I've seen people use that phrase online and get absolutely slammed Mm -hmm. because the perception is that if you say that you're colorblind, that means that you're denying my experience that is unique to my background. Yes. Yes. Now, if somebody says, I'm colorblind, I highly doubt that their subtitle to that statement would be, I'm colorblind, and therefore your ethnic background has no validity whatsoever, so I refuse to acknowledge anything that you or your ancestors have ever encountered. I doubt that's what they mean by that. But we need to have the benefit of the doubt, and we need to have a reception to others' best intentions, unless given a reason otherwise. If somebody is wearing a Klansman outfit and says to you, your race doesn't matter, okay, now we're talking about something that we can probably confidently say, okay, we're dealing with racism here. But if somebody well-meaning says, I'm colorblind, for instance, I would really struggle to believe that that person has racist intentions. Mm -hmm. When we talk about different spectrums in society, we also have to remember that in this vein, there is a, a spectrum by that, I mean, I have witnessed, this is very beautiful. I have witnessed people have really solid, formative, charitable conversations Mm -hmm. in terms of trying to understand things better because they gave each other the benefit of the doubt. They were legitimately friends and there was some confusion and trying to work things out. And guess what? There was learning. There was understanding. There was uh, reconciliation. There was humanity. There was a humane exchange. There wasn't virtue signaling. There wasn't look these are all the reasons why if you haven't attended a protest, you're a racist. No, that's absurd. That's absolutely absurd. I would highly doubt that simply by virtue of not having attended a protest, that means that somebody is simply categorically a racist. We tend to often throw around terms and titles, and they really do a grand disservice to humanity when it comes to people just simply trying to learn about trying to process this. People need time to process things. I'm not a counselor or a psychologist, but I can pretty safely assert that any psychologist or counselor will tell you that people need time to process things. Mm -hmm. It is very infrequent to have an immediate conversion, an immediate change of mindset, especially in the comments box on social media. That's not where those (laughs) things tend to happen. So this is my recommendation for anybody listening. When things get heated or tense on social media if you really care about the soul of that person with whom you're engaging take it to a messenger or call each other on the phone how many things are missed with tone on social media how many things are missed when when there's a quote-unquote audience watching versus if you just simply have two human beings speaking to each other Mm -hmm. i really think we need an entire ministry anymore we need an entire ministry devoted to are uh, reconciling some of the discord that has happened between people on social media. I think that that could be a full-time job with a voluminous staff.
0: How sad is that? Uh, so I
1: encourage people, you know, if you see things are just getting a little too much to bear, to say, let's talk about this on the phone. Mm-hmm. Or, or let's meet in person. Right. You can do the social distancing. You can stand <laughs> six feet apart. You know, it might end in wanting to hug one another once you understand things better where do we move forward from here from now until uh june 30th I actually started this few days ago i've been clocking how much time i've spent on social media and at the end of the day however many minutes that is that's how many minutes i'm on my knees with my bible praying for this
0: Amen. so therefore i'm not
1: tempted to let my presence on social media be the sum of my response to this wow i try wow. to endeavor to keep things charitable and as reasonable as i'm able to muster and and i've had a a fair amount of good conversations i've had a few situations that feature that lack of best intentions and benefit of the doubt and i think those were eventually reconciled but my recommendation my advice to everyone is when things get heated tense take it off long. that's where the saint making happens i want to tell all catholics anybody of goodwill if you want to be a doctor of the church make sure that what you're saying on social media is going to lead to that one day
0: Justin, I wanna thank you so much. Your wisdom on this and so many other topics is just so beneficial and so fruitful for me. And I know for so many others, I really appreciate your insight and all the time that you've taken to share with us. And I want to ask where people can find your articles, where they can find your books, how they can find more of the things that you've written and put out there.
1: So if anybody wants to to read uh, my books you can go to AveMariaPress.com my beloved publisher shout out to Ave Maria Press and also I really recommend that everybody read the USCCB pastoral letter that came out 2018 open wide our hearts a pastoral letter against racism It's available for free online because the USCCB's document really frames the matter in a gospel-oriented way, which is refreshing. Uh, So I really recommend that everybody, Catholics and anyone of goodwill, read that in order to view the matter of racial discord in a way that we have hope. So we can look at the injustices of the past and the present and look with hope to the future. And the gospel is filled with that, with hope to the future. We will not be entirely reconciled on this side of eternity. So if we want to be saints one day, then we had better be some really good disciples right now. Right. And right. the world needs our hope, the hope that comes from Jesus Christ and his gospel.
0: Thank you so much again, Justin. This has been a great pleasure. My pleasure, Kim.
1: God bless you.
0: No power.